0: Hello and welcome to Byline Radio with me, Adrian Goldberg. Today, pretty Patel and a rare defeat for the hostile environment. The Home Secretary has been told that the confiscation of asylum seekers' phones is illegal. It is a rare setback for a government that has been seeking to tighten the screw on those fleeing persecution and poverty, as exemplified by the Nationality and Borders Bill currently being piloted through Parliament. Despite a rebellion in the House of Lords, MPs voted last week to restore measures in the bill that include plans to process asylum seekers offshore and impose lengthy prison sentences on all those who arrive in the UK through an unsanctioned route, even if they have risked their lives crossing the Channel in a small boat. It is all part of a hostile environment initiated in 2007 by the then Immigration Minister, Liam Byrne, who was part of the new Labour government that introduced fines for bosses who hired employees who couldn't prove they had a right to work in the UK. The coalition government from 2010 ramped up the pressure on undocumented migrants, and now we have the current bill. But there has been a defeat for Boris Johnson's government over the seizure of asylum seekers phones. We'll be hearing from Katie Tarrant shortly. She broke the original story about asylum seekers phones being seized on the Byline Times and the Byline Times chief investigations reporter Sam Bright will also join us as well to explain the broader context and I'm keen to explore this evening what this story tells us about how we treat asylum seekers and refugees in the UK especially at this moment as we're dealing with the fallout from Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Before we get cracking, though, just a reminder that Byline Radio comes from the Byline Times and we don't have any corporate backer to support us. There's no proprietor writing the checks. Essentially, we rely on people like you to fund us. And the good thing about that is that because we aren't in hock to anybody else, we can report without fear or favor so if you want to support what we do please take out a subscription to the byline times you'll get a fantastic monthly newspaper but you'll also be supporting this enterprise byline radio you'll also be supporting the byline times podcast where you might be enjoying this show again on catch up or indeed you might be helping to support our news breaking website bylinetimes.com that's where you'll find details of how to subscribe on that website at byline times.com. And we'd also welcome your contributions as well. This evening, if you're listening live on Byline Radio, in the bottom left-hand corner of your screen, if you're on the phone anyway, I don't think this works on laptops or Macs or PCs, but if you're listening on your phone in the bottom left-hand corner, you should have a little microphone icon. If you tap that, then... You can join us. All you have to do is request access to the microphone, tap it. And then if uh, I like the cut of your jib, I'll let you on. And as long as you've got something intelligent or sensible to say or a question to ask, we'll be very keen to let you join in. Obviously, if you're listening via the Byline Times podcast on a catch up, you can't do that. But you can always send me an email after the event, as it were to goldbergradio at gmail.com that's goldbergradio at gmail.com let's catch up first then with katie tarrant now she wrote the original story in the byline times and this goes back a fair way now about asylum seekers having their mobile phones seized by border control katie welcome along to byline radio your debut good to have you with us you're right
1: Hi, Adrian. Yeah, thanks for having well, me it's on. It's lovely.
0: Well done, by the way. This was a cracking story. Just tell us how you came about the story and, and what it said.
1: Well, I mean, the story actually developed very naturally, um, which is unusual. But essentially, I came across a contract between the Home Office um, and a provider of data extraction kiosks called MSAB um, a data extraction kiosk is, is what Border Force and other uh, police and stuff can use to extract data from mobile phones. And, you know, I wasn't this was in uh, 2020 and I wasn't aware that the uh, that Border Force were using such technology. So I sent a freedom of information request to the home office to ask how many times this technology had been used what was it being used for um, and then kind of started doing my own research um so I was asking around refugee charities and organizations to see if anyone had heard of this technology being used you know were, were the home office taking away phones um and you know what why why was it a contract that was in place and nobody seemed to know anything about it until I came across a just your average kind of charity volunteer uh, at Care for Calais who had been keeping a record of the amount of uh, refugees that she had helped after they'd had their phone taken by the Home Office, and at that point it was nearly a hundred phones. And you know, I was astounded by this that you know did this one uh, charity um, volunteer. Had, had come across this happening in so many different circumstances. Um, and as it transpired uh, when my FOI came back, the Home Office had actually been enacting this policy whereby almost every migrant that crossed the Channel in 2020 had their phone taken. Um,
0: you say it wasn't just about taking the phone from them. Mm this was about data extraction so what kind of information were border officials getting from these phones
1: well they funnily enough would not answer that question directly um but what what you can assume from what these data kiosks allow users to do is you can download all of the messages photos uh any kind of documents so if you know um A refugee had their passport uploaded to their phone or anything like that. Emails, basically, you know, imagine your your entire life is on your phone and that is what the Home Office had access to. And when they did um, give me a response, they said that they were using this technology to tackle organised crime groups. But what they didn't say they were doing and what what it turns out they weren't doing, it was distinguishing between people who they had a legitimate reason to be concerned were part of an organised crime group and your average person coming across in a boat. So essentially, as we've seen in policy since, they were treating every single person crossing the channel as a potential criminal.
0: Yeah, I suppose it's the equivalent, isn't it, of stop and search without good reason. There might be Mm. occasions when Officials might think, hmm, that person might well have connections with the criminal underworld or might be a a human trafficker. We need to be establishing the reality of that suspicion versus just indiscriminately scraping information from everybody who's arriving in the UK or indeed arriving in in northern France and, (laughs) and seeking access to the UK.
1: Mm, exactly, and the thing about it was one of their defences was that uh, they, I th- they, so they issued a receipt when they were taking the phone for instra- extraction. That the way they presented it was like this: gives you know the person, the the person has the opportunity to decline to give the phone to the Home Office. You know, we're, we're not pressuring anyone to do this. But actually, when we saw a copy of the documents uh, given to asylum seekers when their phones were taken away, it said, you are lawfully required to now provide the officer seizing the phone with the pin and security code which unlocks it. It is an offence not to provide these details. And so uh, what, you know, um, institutions like Privacy International, when we spoke to them about our findings here, said was that it is not consent if you're coerced into doing it or you're told that you're going to be arrested if you don't hand over your phone. And the fact of the matter is when, you know, when I was speaking to this, just this one volunteer, she'd been campaigning for almost a year to get some of the phones back that had been taken. So people who had crossed, as you say, from from France, and they they were deprived of any means of contacting a lawyer, of uh, contacting their family to tell them that they were safe and some of them still haven't got it back.
0: Could there be an argument here, Katie, that the Home Office ultimately has a responsibility to protect every man, woman and child in this country, and that those phones might potentially have contained information about people who were smuggling human beings into this country, and and were doing so in a way that potentially anyway could have been harmful to this country?
1: I think it's incredibly important for the Home Office to take measures to tackle organised crime because, you know, at the end at the end of the day, some of these people coming over are, be- are being exploited by said criminals as well. But the fact of the matter is any kind of measure doing that needs to be proportionate. And what the uh, court case against the Home Office that concluded a few days ago that Pretty Patel's actions were unlawful, said was that this was not a proportionate response. You know, a, a child coming across that has a mobile phone, I think, you know, in some cases you can probably assume they're not part of the organised crime network and, and depriving them of that phone is actually going to do them a lot of harm. So I think it's all about proportionality.
0: And your original article was in August 2021, so mm. seven months ago. How did the case come to court?
1: Um, so it took a while to come to court because the Home Office at the time um, and at the time of us publishing this article were still, you know, denying to the lawyers that this was even taking place. Um, and so what happened is in, in January, um, they started the court hearing and there was an initial admission from uh, one of the Home Office's lawyers that they they might have acted unlawfully and that a secret policy may have taken place. And then that has only got stronger as the case was, has gone on. Um, and, you know, it's been really interesting to see that it was, it was um, three asylum seekers that actually brought the case against the Home Office. And it has been, you know, heartbreaking to hear their experiences um, and the fact that you know, other people that have tried to get their phones back, you know, calls... They they were given a phone number apparently to get their phones back and these these were not answered. The um, email that was set up to to respond to people asking for their phones back didn't receive responses. You know, it's it's what we've seen in similar cases when the Home Office said that they would be bringing over people from Afghanistan that needed um, safe housing in the UK and, and they didn't answer their emails then either. So I think, yeah, as I say, the case has developed over the last few months, but what it's shown as a lot of similarities to other cases where asylum seekers have been mistreated in the UK.
0: And as you say, for most people these days, their life is on their phone and mm. their contacts, their photos, especially if you've travelled thousands of miles in pursuit of a safe haven i I don't know if you can shed any light on those stories from the asylum seekers that were that were heard in court but uh, but in any event the fact that the phones were not returned to people for many months meant that effectively over and above the scraping of their data they were being denied the opportunity perhaps to stay in touch with loved ones and children or parents or whatever
1: Mm. well it's it's exactly as you say you know a couple of um asylum speakers uh, asylum seekers that i did speak to for the article were saying actually it, it was the photos and and things like that you know they've they've traveled um from iran from eritrea from syria and the that phone was the only thing they had to you know look at any memories of times with family um and you know that create such a sense of hopelessness and and not to be able to contact the people that you love for so long. And again, as I said, you know, it actually was an impediment to some people's asylum claims because the documents that they needed were on the phones and they couldn't get the phones back. You know, it was just such a vicious cycle of people's pain being extended over a, a longer period of time just because officials, you know, couldn't, couldn't find the phones. In some cases, actually, some people alleged that the Home Office had lost their phones or they were saying that they needed it for um, a longer period of time.
0: Following the the court ruling now, Priti Patel has had to acknowledge that this was a, a, this blanket policy, that particular part of it, the fact that it was applied, apparently, to everyone going through Mm. a particular port, that that was wrong and they they cannot continue with this policy.
1: Mm. And I think that felt very very far away and uh, not a likely possibility when we were first investigating this because the the home office put up such a fight even you know with the lawyers denying that this was not happening you know when i actually sent this foi it was only 23 days after that um request that they actually published that they uh, that they kind of what it seemed like they had done is, is hastily got together a document that suggested there was a kind of policy in place to look, make it look even more legitimate. And then now they've said even that policy was unlawful. Um, and so, I mean, I guess my question now would be what kind of if, if this was unlawful and people's human rights were breached, what kind of justice are they going to see now?
0: I know that you've popped out of work to bring us up to date on this story. Please stay with us for as long as you can, Katie, but I know that you might have to uh, disappear as well. But if you want to ask Katie a story, uh, if you want to ask Katie a question about the story while she's still here with us, by all means do so. If you've got a comment to make and you're listening live to At Byline Radio on the phone, in the bottom left-hand corner of your screen, you'll see a little microphone icon. Tap that. That tells me that you want to talk, and I'll grant you permission to talk if you've got something sensible to say and we're going to be talking more about the context of this as well with Sam Bright from Byline Time. I was really keen to hear what you make of it though and what it tells us about Britain's attitude towards people who are fleeing persecution or poverty, sometimes a distinction is drawn between those who are in fear of their lives during war or those who are simply seeking a better life for themselves, as if that were a trivial or unimportant thing. But in any event, I'd welcome your comments. If you're listening live, that's great. If you're not listening live, if you're listening via the Byline Times podcast, well, you can still drop me a comment, and I might reflect it in a future episode of the podcast or put it up on the uh, the Twitter feed. Send me an email to goldbergradio at gmail.com. And just to remind you, my name's Adrian Goldberg, and you're listening to Byline Radio from the Byline Times, independent, fearless journalism. We make a brilliant monthly newspaper. And if you subscribe to that, and it only costs £39 a year... Well, you'll be supporting honest, fearless journalism and helping to support Byline Radio, the Byline Times podcast and Byline TV as well. Find out more about subscribing at BylineTimes.com, our newsbreaking website. That's at BylineTimes.com. Sam Bright is with us as well, as I mentioned. He's the chief investigations reporter for the Byline Times. And Sam, I said in my introduction, this is a rare defeat for a government which seems to determined to tighten the screw day by day on migrants
2: arriving in the uk Mm. unless they're from ukraine of course well yeah exactly and you do you say rare but it's had a few defeats in recent years over the hostile environment even if it's just pr defeats so obviously the hostile environment being revealed initially um, was a major defeat for the government and for the Conservative Party as a whole. But I think it's just so relentless in trying to force through this agenda that um, that yeah, those the, those moments um, outshine really the um, the defeats that it that it has that it suffers. I mean, Katie called it a vicious cycle that these asylum seekers have to go through, and I think the people who are imposing that, who are being the vicious part of the vicious cycle, are the at the Home Office because this has been a concerted policy over many years and we talk about the government breaking the law. I remember investigating back in 2015, 2016, the fact that um, asylum seekers had been paid out millions of pounds every year because they were unlawfully housed in immigration detention facilities. Um, and you know seven years later Asylum seekers are still being paid millions of pounds a year because they're being unlawfully held in immigration detention facilities. It's um, it's a case of the government not learning from repeated, I think, repeated failures and and an onslaught um, from the public saying, for well, from many 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 voters among us, that um, that this isn't what they want to see from a modern progressive government, yeah. um, and talk, they could continue in you know, anyway.
0: Sorry, Sam, to cut across you, but I mean, you talk about the Conservatives. This is a quote. What we are proposing here will, I think, flush illegal migrants out. We are trying to create a much more hostile environment in this country if you are here illegally. We have to make Britain much less of an attractive place if you're going to come here and break the rules. That wasn't a Conservative minister speaking, that was a Labour minister speaking. That was Liam Byrne back in 2007 when he was a new Labour minister, when he introduced £10,000 fines for employers who hired workers who didn't have the correct documentation. So the concept of a hostile environment, it may well have been amplified, particularly by Theresa May when she was Home Secretary. Uh, Sam, it's interesting to me that the House of Lords has seemed to push back at what I regarded as some of the more extreme measures of the Nationality and Borders Bill, and there was some speculation last week in Parliament that MPs might go with the Lords, or at least there might be a substantial Conservative backbench rebellion in order to overturn the government's plans to process migrants overseas, to criminalise those who arrive via unsanctioned routes, but it's quite lots of rumours, lots of huffle puffle in the media. It, it never came to pass, and and those clauses have been restored to the
2: Nationality and Borders Bill. Yeah, exactly. And um, this seems to be a bit of a war that's going on in the Conservative Party at the minute, whether it should adhere to British Bill's approach to immigration and asylum or whether she should be booted out of um cabinet entirely and um, for the minute they're sticking with it and it it strikes me that they've gone far they've gone too far down the path um, down Priti Patel's path to uh to reverse now and show a more uh dignified approach to uh asylum seekers um but yeah especially with with um Boris Johnson's 80 seat majority, he can essentially force through, if he's in support of the measures, which he seems to be, he can essentially force through whatever he wants. And Priti Patel's been a close ally of his. Um, so he's going to stick with it. What, one thing that, that uh, I found quite interesting, Adrian, because you you might think that someone who's who's pursuing quite, quite hardline policies, quite right wing policies, um, might go down well among the Conservative grassroots. We've seen that with Liz Truss; She's been very popular among Conservative party members. Um, but I was looking back through Conservative Home, the website, um, it, it polls members on the most popular cabinet ministers. And Priti Patel was the second least popular cabinet minister in February, and the fourth least popular in January. So even despite these um, pretty hardline views, she's not She's not even appealing to the Conservative Party grassroots, which makes which makes you think why why exactly is she, is she doing this? Um, she's definitely not benefiting personally, politically from it. Um, so it's it's baffling to me that she would that she would pursue this so hard. There is uh, another strand of the Conservative Party,
0: though, and I've mentioned the talk of a backbench rebellion last week, never came to pass in any significant numbers, but there have been a number of Conservative MPs, including the Foreign Secretary, Dominic Raab, including the now Health Secretary, Sajid Javid, including the former International Development Secretary, Andrew Mitchell, who have all at one time or another lobbied for the right of asylum seekers to be allowed to work while their claims are processed. Mm. And they argue that that would be good for the country because those asylum seekers would not have to be supported to the extent that they are. It would also be good for the asylum seekers. At the moment, you can't work if you're an asylum seekers unless you are in the country for 12 months and your claim has not been processed through no fault of your own. So, you know, there are, as so often in these cases, the people who claim to hate bureaucracy and red tape, but all sorts of hurdles in the way of mm. uh, people who arrive in this country, but people who may well have skills to offer. And as, as part of that, I just also observe, Sam, that, you know, the phrase illegal immigrant is often used mm-hmm. at the point at which people are seeking asylum before the Nationality and Borders Bill becomes law anyway, they are not illegal asylum seekers. You, you can't be, at that right. point, illegal because your case has not been assessed. The validity of your claim
2: has not been assessed at that point. No, exactly. There's no such thing, like you say, as an illegal asylum seeker. Um yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty shocking to be honest. I think it's, it's drawn out in the fact that uh, Ukrainian refugees who are allowed in through the the family scheme. So um, sorry, the the community scheme whereby um, people can put a Ukrainian refugee up in their home. Um, those Ukrainians are, are allowed the right to work and, um, Thus undermining um, the Home Office's policy for you know decades now of not uh, allowing other asylum seekers um, to work, which is which is pretty which is pretty pretty shocking. And I do wonder whether the Ukraine situation will cause some thawing of the of the government's approach um, to asylum, or whether a new wave of asylum seekers um, coming across the Channel and Nigel Farage banging on it on GB news will, will cause them to retrench to the, to the barracks once again. And, and um, I mean, some of the details of the nationality and borders bill are pretty shocking. You know, as you've mentioned, um, sending asylum seekers to foreign islands in, in order to be processed, um, deploying the Royal Navy, um, you know, there's some suggestion that wave machines might be used to repel asylum seekers coming across the channel. And it's been highlighted rightly by Labour and others that um, Ukrainians might be on these boats um, in the not too distant future. Because, I mean, it's ludicrous, the idea of criminalising somebody on the basis of how they get to this country. When these are people, you know, if not fleeing Putin's bombs, if not, sorry, if not fleeing Putin's bombs in Ukraine, then fleeing Putin's bombs in Syria and Assad's chemical weapons And to think that you can you can tightly organize your route to the UK and find a legal route, which, um, by the way, haven't really been offered by the UK government prior to um, these Ukrainian schemes. And in these cases, you know, very incompetently, it's just the whole idea is is ludicrous if we put ourselves in the position of these of these asylum seekers for, for even a moment. Yeah, our
0: contributors uh, on a previous episodes of Byline Radio and on Byline Times podcast have made the point that the people fleeing Putin's bombs in Ukraine are almost deliberately, it seems, being placed outside the normal UK refugee system. The fact that you can apply for a visa, for example, certainly the first tranche of, of refugees were being dealt with through a more conventional uh, immigration route or, or almost a holiday route because it's a visa rather than the conventional um, asylum seeking system, almost as mm. though a distinction, well, a distinction was being made between those people fleeing persecution, as you say, the people fleeing Putin's bombs in Kyiv or Mariupol were being treated differently to those fleeing Putin's bombs in syria and, mm. and 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 the fact that it was the the uh, michael gove's department the department for communities and leveling up that was dealing with ukrainian refugees rather than the home office as though the home office doesn't want to be tarnished by actually seeking to help people mm. who are in fear
2: for their lives well i do think it's it's fascinating i think the um the distinction or not between asylum asylum seekers and immigrants. Um, Because if you think about it, Ukraine in this current situation and through the visa routes sort of signifies migration from the Western world. You know, it seemed as though during the Brexit debate that, to put it frankly, white immigrants or those from more developed countries were fine but people who weren't white are not okay. And yet it was through Brexit that immigration rather than asylum was being clamped down on. Um, So the very people um, who uh, Zelensky and the Ukrainians want to join in the EU, we were in in essence, um, we were trying to reduce those numbers of people. um, And yet... You know the the brexit debate i think might have relied quite heavily on the syrian refugee crisis which obviously as we know occurred sort of 2014 2015 in the immediate run-up to the referendum where people saw millions of people going to to germany um a series of you know terrorist incidents that were completely unrelated but you know they they associated brown faces with with both these occurrences and therefore, sought to clamp down on those people coming to the UK. Whereas, in actual fact, what they did was was end up clamping down on Ukrainians and people in the in the Western world. You know, and it just—I think—it just shows the irony of the debate and the lack of understanding and nuance from those um, you know who were who were propagating these sort of these sort of myths. You know, well, willful. Um, misunderstanding of, of the myths. I think they, they were fully aware of what they were doing, but um, they wanted to lead the public down the garden the garden path uh, regardless.
0: If you do want to join in, now is the moment. If you're listening live on Byline Radio, in the bottom left hand of your screen, there is a microphone icon. Tap that. That will request access to speak. And when I say that, I'll give you access to speak to us for as long as you can entertain, or inform us otherwise sam and i'll uh, uh, maybe nip down the pub i don't know it's entirely <laughs> up to you uh, but uh, just to say as well and uh, you do need a note to, or you may need to get off uh, sam i don't know but it, it's entirely up to you, you it, it, this has been fascinating insight one final question i'm going to ask you because i will i will let you go and it, it's really about the Labour Party, I say they initiated in some form, I'm not, I'm not saying that Labour are responsible for where we are now, but yeah, New Labour, for reasons that were calculated to appeal to the electorate, went down the route of creating this hostile environment in the first place. And there's no question that Theresa May, first in the coalition government, and now Priti Patel as Home Secretary, have, have seriously turned up the heat mm. on that hostile environment. But for the reasons that Labour introduced it in the first place, Mm. perhaps they are fearful of speaking out on this. And that's one of the reasons that there hasn't been that much vocal opposition to the Nationality and Borders Bill, or at least vocal opposition that has really cut through. Labour have not made this a platform on which they seek to oppose the government Mm. strongly. Mm. And behind that lies, I think, perhaps an understandable, but also quite a cynical electoral calculation, one
2: equivalent Mm. to that which Liam Byrne exercised all those years back in 2007. Yeah and I I'd like to couch what I say next in the fact that I'm not endorsing what what labor has said and done on this issue but just merely trying to explain it. Um I think you're entirely I think you're entirely right it is um it is a strategic political move. And I think what they what they're betting on in particular now is that um views of immigration and asylum are caught up very directly with Brexit and they are the top issues of concern to brexit voters particularly older white brexit voters and um, that reside in the red wall as we famously know now you know dozens of red wall seats fell from labour to the tories at the last election and labour needs to get them back and so even if it even if it doesn't directly appeal in the same way that the conservatives does and say uh, bigoted things about immigration. It's certainly trying it, uh, its trying its best not to push away those voters and um, to really push their buttons in such a way that it drives them back into the Conservative Party's hands at the next election. And you might say, what's the point of the Labour Party if it doesn't stand for progressive ideas and doesn't call out the Conservative Party um, on these issues? Um, and if you're Keir Starmer, you might say, well, if we if uh, the Conservatives keep getting in power, then the, you know, in perpetuity, they're going to be able to institute these sorts of laws that will criminalize asylum seekers and immigrants. And what matters is winning the election. And then you can judge our values. And I think, you know, both views have merit, to be honest. I, I have sympathy with 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 both of them. Um, but I think that's that's pretty much where the Labour Party is coming from at the minute. Sam, thanks for your time tonight. Sam Bright, Chief Investigations
0: Reporter of Byline Times. You've been listening to Byline Radio, or you might be listening again on catch-up via the Byline Times podcast. Either way, we're very grateful to your company and very grateful for your support. This is Byline Radio coming to you from the Byline Times if you want to support free independent journalism in the uk and beyond please consider taking out a subscription to the byline times nobody owns us nobody tells us what to say we are not party political we just try to tell the truth as our journalists see it so do think about taking out a subscription it helps fund byline radio and the byline times podcast get more details on our website at bylinetimes.com that has loads of great news breaking stories fresh every day that's also where you'll find details of how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com thanks very much indeed for listening we'll see you again very soon keep an eye on the byline times twitter feed that's where we advertise when we're going to go live with these spaces and we'll see you again as i say shortly thanks very much indeed for listening